I want to introduce the video clip that we're about to show to kick off our sermon today. When I was growing up, there was this movie that was shown on television every year. And there was one scene in that movie that was reminiscent of what I felt like it was to come to God with my requests. I'm going to show it to you right now. A little scene from The Wizard of Oz. Wait a minute, fellas. I was just thinking, I really don't want to see the wizard this much. I'd better wait for you outside. What's the matter? Oh, he's just as scared again. Don't you know the wizard's going to give you some courage? I'd be too scared to ask him for it. Well, then we'll ask him for you. I'd sooner wait outside. Why? Why? Because I'm still scared. Somebody pulled my tail. <laughs> you did it yourself. I. Oh. Come on. Come forward. Tell me when it's over. I want to go home. <laughs> I am Oz, the great and powerful. Who are you? Your Honor. You see, a while back, we were walking down the yellow brick road, and... And you, Scarecrow, have the effrontery to ask for a brain, you billowing bale of bovine fodder! Yes, Your Honor. I mean, Your Excellency. Uh, I mean, uh, your wizardry. Enough! Uh, and you, lion! <laughs> well? You ought to be ashamed of yourself, frightening him like that when he came to you for help! Silence, whippersnapper! The beneficent Oz has every intention of granting your requests. What's that? What'd he say? Huh? What'd you say? But first, you must prove yourselves worthy by performing a very small task. Bring me the broomstick of the Witch of the West. But, 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 but if we do that, we'll have to kill her to get it. Bring me her broomstick, and I'll grant your requests. Now go. But what if she kills us first? I said go! <laughs> Not unlike the Old Testament, actually. 
the powerful Shekinah glory behind the veil. The high priest once a year into that very cloud. Fearful thought. Are we worthy enough? Like the tin man, we have matters of the heart that we need healing. Like the cowardly lion, we need courage to face the challenges and the difficulties in the future. Like the scarecrow, we need wisdom. Like Dorothy, we need direction. Just wonder sometimes, does God care enough? And am I worthy enough? Have I done enough for Him to say, I'll listen to you? But one of the things that we've learned is that the coming of Christ changed that dynamic forever. What Jesus taught about prayer, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, the very first words that Jesus taught are the game changer. Our Father, Potter, our Father in heaven. It changes everything. God is not to be feared. God is to be approached boldly and gladly because the way has been made through Christ. That place that was once feared, the writer of Hebrews says, we now come boldly into that very holy place. Why? Because it's Daddy's place. I remember for me, even as I went into ministry, my first 10 years of ministry, were very much driven, now that I look back, out of this desire to make God pleased with what I did. I had to be worthy. I was going to do something for God. Accomplishment-oriented. Then, around age 30... That was a very important transition period for me. It was a time of rethinking my Christian journey. Not my faith in Jesus, but what my understanding of that journey is about. And I felt like, boy, there ought to be something else than this constant weight that I I need to work harder. I understood what grace was. I understood the gospel. But somehow I saw God as somebody that I had to prove myself worthy of. And then we had a baby. I held him in my arms. And suddenly, I was a father, and my feelings for my son, I realized there was a love there that had nothing to do with accomplishment. That all he had to do was come to me, and I'd always be there for him. That's a father's heart. And suddenly, I saw that that's what Potter was to me. And my relationship in that period of transition changed from a relationship with God that was accomplishment-driven to one that was truly relationship-oriented. I became a worshiper, not a worker, first and foremost. Our prayer needs to make that transition. We need to recognize that God wants us to come to Him. And when we bring our requests, He cares. Today, finally, our fifth sermon into the series, we're going to look at where most of us begin with our prayer, and that's bringing our requests to God. But Jesus finds it necessary to prepare them to be at the right place when they bring their requests to God. So he says, first of all, remember it's your Father. Prayer is about an intimate relationship with God. But secondly, prayer has to line up with God's priorities. Prayer has commitments. Hallowed be your name. I live first and foremost to make God famous. Your kingdom come. I live to extend God's influence and reign. Your will be done. I need to want what God wants in my life and in this world. I get those things lined up. Then when I bring my requests to God, those requests are in tune to God's will. 
You see, James says something very interesting. You have not because you ask not. But then he goes on and says, and when you ask, you don't receive because you pray for the wrong reasons. And what Jesus wants to make sure is that when we finally get to the give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us, we've already got our heart in tune to God's priorities. And all those requests are merely a means of God having his way in our lives not us having our way with God. Does that make sense to you? Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're going to spend two weeks in these petitions. Today we're going to look at give us our daily bread and forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. But before we do that, let's double back on this question that I've, I've teased about over several weeks, and that's why do we ask God for things? Let's review some of the passages that we've read in Matthew 6, 8. Say this with me. Your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And now Philippians 4, 19. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. Why ask if God already knows and we already have the promise that God will provide all our needs, not according to our prayers, but according to his riches in Christ Jesus. If there's already a promise that God provides for his children, then why ask? I want to suggest three things. One, God wants us to ask. Several weeks ago in our worship, we read from the book of Revelation where it talked about this incredible scene that John witnesses in a vision around the throne of God and all the elders are holding vessels with incense and then John is told that incense is the prayers of God's people. God wants us to pray. He wants us to bring our petitions to Him, and for no other reason we ought to do it just because of that. Look with me at Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Part of worship is presenting our needs to God. He wants to hear it. Second, why do I ask God for things? Because it affirms my reliance on Him. God wants to know that we know that He's the one that meets our needs. Asking is a confession of our reliance on God. You see, if you wait to ask God for your needs until you've exhausted every other possibility, including your own wisdom and skill and resources, and then finally go to prayer, what you've proven is that you're not relying on God. God is your means of last resort, not first resort. Why do I bring my request to God? Because it It reminds me, He's the one that meets my needs. I am utterly, completely, absolutely, and gloriously 
reliant on God for everything. The third reason why we ask God for things is because bringing our requests to God replaces worry with peace. Think about that. That's what we saw in Philippians chapter 4. Let me read it again. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do you get peace about things? You give it to God. You let go of it to Him. It's His business to worry about. It's not yours. Now, does that mean we don't plan and we don't schedule and we don't put our wisdom into working towards things? No, but Scripture says even your ability to create wealth is a provision from God. Therefore, if God promises He's going to provide my needs, if I'm coming to Him with it, then what I have in return is peace of mind because it's not mine to worry about anymore. Right? Peter says, casting all of our cares on Him because he cares for us. God gets the worry. I get peace. Because it's his problem, not mine. I love that thought. Let's move on and look at this exact phrase. Give us this day our daily bread. And I just want to pull out the phrase a little bit. Bread in the Hebrew culture meant all things needed for life, both physical and spiritual. When we say give us our daily bread, we're not just saying, Lord, I'd really like to make sure I'm not hungry today. We're saying, God, I'm trusting that you're going to provide everything that's necessary for my life, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. But it's not just bread, it's daily bread. And what that means is that our reliance on the Father is constant and ongoing. You know, we talk about how everything that happened in the Old Testament is meant to be, in some ways, a metaphor or an analogy for what was fulfilled in Christ and in the church. One of them is the manna that fell from heaven. How often did the manna fall? Daily, except for the Sabbath. didn't fall on the Sabbath. And they were told to collect just what they needed for that day. And what happened if they collected more than they needed for that day? What would happen to it? It rotted. He was making a point. He was teaching something to them that God promises to meet their needs, but it's a daily dependence. What a great object lesson. We now have the bread of life, Jesus Himself. And we're confident that we have all that we need because of it. But it's a daily dependence. Christ spoke against those that came to trust so much in their bank accounts. There's no sin in wealth as long as we recognize that God owns it all. When you start depending on your resources above all things, and I'll tell you, because of a church this size and a congregation this size, some of you worship your wealth. If we looked at what you're giving to God, what you're doing with the resources you have, you'd prove that you're not relying on God. You're relying on not the provider, but on the provision, right? I've never seen a person who is truly relying on God who is not also a very generous person. That was free. Wasn't in the sermon. Just throwing it out there. And if there's conviction, so be it. It's not just bread, it's not just daily bread. 
but it's our daily bread. Our reliance on God's provision is communal. One of the things we've learned about this prayer is that it's in plural. It's us, our. We pray this together, but that's something that reminds us that we are the very answer for the provision in one another's lives. We come to God and say, give us, and then we provide for one another in our community. That's the model we see in the New Testament church. Let me just list some lessons that we can get out of this in relation to daily, some daily lessons. One, God will provide necessities, but not always the niceties. (laughs) There's an important distinction here. Now, there are sections of the church today that want to pretend that the Scripture actually promises that very wealth. And I, I just want to be very clear, that is a mismanagement of Scripture. It's not true to reality in life, and it's not true to the Word of God. But it does promise that God will provide all of our needs. But some of us confuse wants with needs. Is that true? Yeah. So part of learning to rely on God is learning to recognize what it is that I really need versus what I'd like to have. Second, Jesus declared a ban on worry. Not just in Philippians 4, but in Matthew chapter 6. After he gives us the Lord's Prayer, he goes on in verse 25 and says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? And then he goes on, of course, that beautiful passage about the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, and how God dresses and cares and feeds them. And of course, he'll care for us as his children so much more. And then he says, do not worry for tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Every day has enough trouble of its own. But what we want to take from that passage is this exhortation from your Jesus, our Savior, Do not worry. Third, God's generosity to us ought to breed generosity in us. If God so generously cares for us, we're called to in turn be generous with what He provides. Let's look now at the second petition. Forgive us as we forgive. There's two different words that are often translated. How many of you, when you were in a group where they said, let's pray the Lord's Prayer, somebody says, debts or transgressions? There's one version that says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and another version that says, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. You might say, which one is it? Well, together they make the full picture. A transgression is a crossing of the line. A debt is something that's owed. Sin is crossing the line, stepping over what is godly and good into what is selfish and dishonoring to God. And what it creates is a debt to God. The wages of sin is death. And so when we say, Lord, forgive us, yeah, we're asking Him to relieve that debt and to forgive us for crossing the line, for transgressing. Here's what I want to be clear about, okay? Our relationship with God as Father, our ability to be in relationship with Him in a way that He blesses us and provides our needs is directly connected to our ability to find forgiveness for our sins. Because God knows everything about your heart, 
Asking God to forgive our sins is telling Him we know and we admit what He already knows about us, right? Look at this verse from 1 John. Let's say this together. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive. See, a lot of us like the idea of Christianity, but we hate the idea of it being about our moral failure. I'd rather talk about how I've been hurt by other people and how I come to God to heal that that brokenness, that woundedness. But God wants to deal with the brokenness and woundedness in your heart, not just what other people have done to you. And if we say that we have no sin, Scripture says we're lying to ourselves. So that's the first thing. We have to get real about sin. And that's why it goes on and says, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just, and He will forgive. The word confession in there means agreeing with God about my sin. That's all it means. You understand how God sees it, and you agree to see it as He sees it. He sees your sin as a barrier, as something that needs to be paid for, He sent Christ in order to pay for that sin, and He's willing to offer you forgiveness, but you have to admit your need for it. So when I say forgive us our debts, we're admitting our debts. We're admitting our sins, right? But then He goes on and says, forgive us as we forgive others. That's a hard one. Let's explore that. The very first comments that Jesus makes after He gives us the Lord's Prayer Verse 14 of Matthew 6, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Now, we have seen in Scripture this glorious truth that we can't earn God's pleasure. We can't make up for our sin. We don't earn our way to heaven. It's by grace alone, through faith that we're saved. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So, How in the world do we fit this concept into that blessed reality of salvation through faith alone when he says, if you don't forgive others? Isn't that adding a work to salvation? Isn't that adding effort to grace? What is he getting at here? Let's look at this verse from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus teaching. Say it with me. When you stand praying... If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. It's very clear. When I'm standing and praying to God, my ability to receive God's grace is inseparable from my willingness to extend God's grace to others. You see, I don't think this is about adding a requirement to grace. I think this is about the condition of our hearts. The fact is, I need God's grace, and and everybody else does. And if I'm unwilling to forgive others, then I'm not really looking at my sin the way I'm supposed to. I'm not really confessing my sin. I'm not really owning my sin. And yet Scripture says, in the confessing, if I confess, God's faithful and just. So here's the reality. If I harbor bitterness towards other people because of their wrongdoing, then I'm not really honestly confessing my sin to God. I can't receive God's grace because I'm harboring bitterness towards others. It's like that parable that Jesus taught of the man who um, 
was forgiven a great debt by his master. And then he goes out, and there was a person that owed him a very small amount. And he was unwilling to forgive him. Had him beaten, thrown in prison. And then the landowner who heard about this came back with ferocity towards this man because he had been forgiven so much. It's a condition of the heart that Jesus is looking for. A truly repentant heart is a conduit for grace. The second thing about that is not forgiving a person makes me a prisoner of their issues. I'm guessing that for some of us, specific people have come to mind. Maybe for some of you, it actually goes all the way back to your childhood. And I don't want to make light of this. Perhaps it was great cruelty that you experienced. Maybe someone that you trusted who took advantage. And you're still wrestling with that brutality, that abuse. Here's the thing. We think forgiveness means pretending everything's okay. Going back to the way things were. So when we think about forgiving these people that have caused such great pain in our lives, we can't imagine it because we think it means I have to feel great about this person again. That's not what the word for forgiveness in Scripture means. It means to give up the requirement to see a person punished. It means to release them from what they deserve. That's what God did to us. He released us from the punishment we deserve. And I'm going to tell you, no matter how painful your experience has been, You don't have to love that person in terms of the warm fuzzies. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to restore that relationship. I think there's a place for making peace with everyone according to Scripture, but that's a whole different thing than extending forgiveness. Forgiveness in prayer and as a spiritual discipline is letting go of my desire to see somebody punished for their wrongdoing. And when I can't do that, It probably isn't affecting that person at all, but it's killing you. I am held captive by what that person did to me. They're going on their merry way. And they may never be held accountable, but I'll be a prisoner of it forever because I can't let go. You see, forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is for you. Freeze your heart from the past, letting go. There's that beautiful passage in Ephesians 5, verse 32. Let's say this as we wrap up. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Here's the standard. Here's the standard. To what degree do I need to forgive, relinquish, let go of the desire to see punished people that have hurt me to the degree that Christ forgave you? To what level of sacrifice to the degree that Christ died so that you might be forgiven? It's almost a hyperbolic statement. There was no extent to which God did not go in order to achieve our forgiveness. Therefore, there's no excuse, there's no circumstance that justifies your allowing yourself to stay trapped in bitterness by the wounds of someone else. Because Christ forgave you everything. If I'm interpreting 
what Jesus taught accurately. There's a, a great reality that some of you have been working so hard on your Christian experience and are not finding the peace and the joy and the satisfaction in it that we keep talking about. And you're working at it and you're working at it and it's empty. And it could very well be this truth. You are not a conduit for God's grace. You want to receive God's grace, but you won't let go of the bitterness that's in your heart. And the path for your peace, the path for your restoration, is found in forgiving forgiving them. That opens up the path to God's grace and all that comes with it. Let's take a moment and pray. And I want you to allow that circumstance that's come to your mind multiple times during this sermon to now take center stage. That hurt, that wound, that bitterness that may be there. I think all of us probably can think of somebody. Imagine yourself holding on to that bitterness as though it had weight, it had substance. And just imagine yourself turning it over to God. Just give it to Him. Picture Him turning back to you and giving you the peace of Christ. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Amen.